We're going to go to a time in our service now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to grab that, a Bible app, whatever it is. Turn to our passage today from Genesis chapter 41. As Ken mentioned, we're continuing in our series through the life of Joseph. So Genesis 41. Yes, we're going to look at all of it, but no, I'm not going to read all of it. So relax, it's good. Um, we'll jump right in. Genesis chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed. Now, two whole years after what? After what we looked at two weeks ago. After the cupbearer is restored to his position and forgets to mention Joseph. Another two years has gone by now. And we read in the following verses that Pharaoh has two dreams, which verse 8 tells us he's very troubled by. Uh, but that none of his wise men or interpreters or magicians can interpret for him. They don't know what the dream means. And in this whole kind of conversation about dream interpretation, the cupbearer is like, boom, light bulb moment. I completely forgot about someone who I know can interpret dreams. He tells Pharaoh of Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. So in verse 14, this is where we'll pick up our passage now. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and quickly brought him out of the pits. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Apparently in the ancient Near East, the Egyptians were some of the only people who were clean-shaven, both of their face and even sometimes their head. Everyone else, white-bearded. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you can hear a dream, but when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Pharaoh said to Joseph, okay, here's the dreams. Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin cows, uh, ugly cows, ate up the first seven plump cows. So when they had eaten them, no one would have known that, it was, that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing in one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after that there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and will shortly, God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and let him set him over the land of Egypt. Now if you're Joseph's friend right now, you're going to be signaling to him, being like, mm -mm, you've done the interpretation, awesome. Joseph's like, you know, and here's what you should do about it. You know, you, you really want to just kind of be like, no man, just stop talking here. But he just, he just goes for it. 
Let Pharaoh, verse 34, let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming up and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. And that food will be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. And this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we, find a man, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh gives Joseph his signet ring, gives him his second best chariot, He's given an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife, completely enculturated into the Egyptian land and put as second in command over the whole land. And then he begins the process of gathering food over these years. And verse 39, or sorry, 49 tells us, so much was stored up, they stopped counting. They couldn't measure it anymore, all the food that they had gathered. Verse 50, before the year of famine came, so this is right at the sixth year, two sons were born to Joseph. Asana, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. In the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. This is God's word. Let me pray for us briefly and then we'll jump into this together. Spirit of God, would you come now and open our hearts and our minds to the preaching of your words. Enlighten your word to us, God, and make it clear and plain to us. Accomplish your good purpose that you are sending out this word to us today, God. We submit ourselves underneath it. Would you accomplish that good purpose in us? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue and speak in truth? Amen. We are outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. We got to make an all-out stand. Hey, yo, I'm going to need a right-hand man. These are, in case you didn't know, the opening words from the hip-hop musical Hamilton, where we are first introduced to the character of George Washington, the famed Virginian general who, although he's clearly up to the task of leading the American forces, feels overwhelmed at the size of the British armies facing and seeks this much-needed assistance from a young revolutionary known as Alexander Hamilton, elevating him in that moment from the place of a brilliant yet barely known immigrant to what one character later describes as being seated at the right hand of the father. Now, yes, the American Revolution and what we read about in our passage today in Genesis 14 41. They are separated by thousands and thousands of years of history. That, that truth alone makes these stories different. They're, they're not the same. I mean, for instance, Pharaoh, he's not rising to power as Joseph was. He's the most powerful leader in the known world at that time. And Pharaoh doesn't yet realize his need for Joseph to step in and be his right-hand man, his second-in-command, because Joseph has not yet revealed God's interpretation of the dream the size of this enemy that Egypt is about to face. And yet, as this story of divine sovereignty 
and purposefulness and suffering continues to unfold, what we learn is that Joseph, like Hamilton, is also an immigrant in the land in which he now lives, albeit an unwilling one. He's brought there as a slave, not a traveler to come study. He too is elevated in a moment to, from obscurity to the right hand of a powerful ruler. And Joseph is also ele elevated at a time in history when a national crisis and his own gifting and calling, those things all meet together perfectly, like at the perfect time. And that last idea there of perfect timing, perfect timing in particular, that's what I want to focus our hearts and minds around this morning as we look at this passage today. For what I believe we're being shown here in this part of Joseph's life now is the historical outworking of what the Apostle Peter, centuries later, would write in 1 Peter 5, 6, where he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. I think Joseph's life here, what we're seeing in his exaltation, is very much that at the proper time, God exalting him. And yet, whether it's Joseph's life we're looking at or any of our lives today, the problem that immediately arises when we try to think about that for ourselves is when it comes to determining who gets to decide and determine what the proper time is. The minute that question arises, all of a sudden we got a problem. And so, in order to help us work through that problem today, uh, for whenever you will encounter it in your lives, and trust me, if you haven't yet, you will, and you'll encounter it many times. I want to look at our passage today in just two ways. I want to talk about rightly defining proper, and then humility, the key to exaltation. How do we rightly define that word proper and humility as one of the keys to our exaltation? So if you close your Bible, your Bible app, whatever, could you open them again with me to our passage here, Genesis 41? Follow along with me as we continue to grow in both our understanding of, as well as our appreciation for, the work of God in our lives, which is always, as we keep seeing here in Joseph's life, meant for our good. Okay, so let's look first of all at rightly defining proper. Rightly defining proper. So again, the way that Peter captures what we see lived out real time in this part of Joseph's life is this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And exaltation, being exalted, I think that's exactly what we see happening here in the life of Joseph as he's promoted in a moment from a prisoner to second in command over all of Egypt. But what does Peter mean? What does Peter mean when he uses that word proper? And maybe even more importantly and more relevant for what we're looking at today in the life of Joseph, who gets to decide what is and is not the proper time? Who makes that call? And I think it's a really important question for us to answer because, as I mentioned two weeks ago, and we now saw clearly in our passage, verse 46, according to God's definition of proper, 13 years. Remember, Joseph is 17 when he's first sold into slavery. We now know he's 30. So 13 years, and not just 13 years, 13 years spent in some combination of being a slave or a prisoner. That, that was the proper time, according to God's definition, after going through all that, that God exalted him. So as I asked you two weeks ago, I'm going to ask you again now, if you knew, I wonder how many of you would agree with God's definition of the proper time. If 
you knew whatever trial or struggle you're currently working through right now, there was going to be another 13 years of working through that before it was the proper time to exalt you out of that. But honestly, this is where our, our passage already has immediate application for our, your life and mine today because, and I'm just going to, we're going to start out easy. We'll take baby steps. I want to create a, a place of safety for us. So we're just going to start with Joseph's story, all right? I'm not going to ask you to think about how this applies to your own life yet. Let's just start with Joseph's story. Think about Joseph's life. And the question I want to ask you to think about as we think about his life, as we've looked at through Joseph's life and all that he's had to endure over those 13 years of life, not have you, but how many times have you looked at the trials, looked at the suffering that Joseph was enduring and felt, okay, that, right there, that's the proper time to exalt Joseph. How many times have you done that as we've gone through this? I'll just, I'll confess, I'll be honest, it's at least three for me. There's been at least three times that I've been like right there. First one, when Joseph's pulled out of that pit and, and sold by his brothers into slavery, God could have done something there. Second one, when uh, Joseph is falsely accused, put in prison, uh, God could have worked out something there, didn't he? Lastly, when Joseph does what we've been talking about, he, he, he makes himself available to be used in the midst of his suffering and interpreting these guys' uh, officials' dreams in prison and yet still continues to rot in prison for two years, in each one of those moments, I, I feel like God got it wrong. His timing wasn't right. That, those were the times when you should have stepped in. And yet knowing how this story ends, knowing the countless number of lives that were saved because God operated according to His own definition and not mine, who was it that actually got it wrong? And given that track record, I wonder how many more times would I have gotten it wrong? How many more times would I have tried to widen the opening of the chrysalis, as it were, to ease Joseph's suffering uh, in, in order to help him get through this a little bit faster? And in what I imagine to be greater wisdom, love, and compassion than God ended up killing everybody. And just for time's sake, uh, let's just consider the last time it appears that God missed the proper time to exalt Joseph when the cupbearer is restored to his position and forgets to mention Joseph. Let's just look at that one time. Because just think about, think through the, the timing of Joseph's request when he made it. Two years ago, when Pharaoh has not yet had these dreams, and therefore there's no national crisis, there's not even a need for Joseph to interpret dreams, what possible good would have come even if the cupbearer had remembered to mention Joseph? You honestly think that the ruler of all the land of Egypt is going to care about some immigrants trapped in one of his prisons right now. Oh, he had an unfair... So what? Don't bother me with this. Or further even to that, if by some miracle, let's say Pharaoh even does have compassion on Joseph in prison, then what? Joseph returns to his screwed up dysfunctional family, now with even more dysfunction to deal with. Hi, brothers, that tried to kill me, then sold me into slavery. And then, two years later, Pharaoh has these same dreams, only now there's really nobody to interpret them. And in seven years, everyone's wiped out by a severe famine they never saw coming. So, yes. Yes, Joseph watches what he believes is his last hope for freedom with the cupbearer sail away into the distance, 
and serves another two years in prison for a crime he didn't even commit. Yes, the cupbearer forgets his promise to mention Joseph to Pharaoh, either because he literally forgot or because he senses the same futility in even mentioning Joseph that we just talked about. He's like, I'm not bringing this up. I just got my position back here. I'm not going to jeopardize that by bringing up some stupid request. Or any of, any of these ideas. Yeah, and yes, God's definition of proper, like we said, it seems hopelessly mistaken from our viewpoint. And yet, again and again and again, both here and every other place we believe got it wrong, what we see is that God's timing is actually entirely proper. In fact, it's perfect. And what we also see, or are beginning to see revealed, is that most times what we mean when we use the word proper is actually just whatever will require the least amount of suffering and effort for me and which leaves me with the biggest piece of birthday cake at the end. That's what we usually mean when we say the proper time to get me out of this. And so in light of all this, in light of all of what we're seeing here, in light of this new evidence, if I can put it that way, I wonder if now you would be willing to, to step outside of the safety of just looking at Joseph's story and apply this same understanding of proper to your own story now. I wonder if you would, would risk with me this morning, just for a moment, removing all the filters, all the like Canadians being nice and, and ceremony and whatnot, and just be really, truly honest with God. Look over the history of your life and all that you've walked through and all you've had to endure, and I wonder if in this moment you would risk being honest and saying to God, these are the places in my life where I feel like you failed me. He can take it. I wonder if you'd be willing to risk doing that with me. Yes, we can do that. We can say, this is where I feel like you, you weren't there for me. Your timing wasn't proper. I, I, you can say, God, I can't understand why you would let me go through that experience. That didn't seem right. I, would, I don't know why you wouldn't get me out of that. Or, I don't know why you would keep me from this experience, which I long for so much. I can't understand why you wouldn't heal me from this Addiction. I don't know why you haven't restored this relationship that's been broken all these years. I don't know why you've allowed me to suffer in this prison cell of depression and anxiety for years and haven't freed me. The timing doesn't seem proper. And then in confessing that to him, to allow the, the light of his Holy Spirit to begin to shine into those dark places. Allow the truth of what we are beginning to see emerge now in the story of Joseph to pierce into the darkness of those places and questions that you try to keep locked away and hidden that you're afraid to even ask because you don't know what it would mean if the answer isn't what you hope it would be. And that in so doing, you would find that it begins to actually revive hope. Hope because... Like Joseph hadn't read the book of Genesis, you haven't yet read your story. And it would revive hope in you because maybe in the same way your assessment of proper timing in the story of Joseph to be exalted was mistaken. Maybe, perhaps, your assessment of what is proper for your own life also lacks the same understanding and vantage point that God enjoys. But he can see and he knows exactly what is needed to complete the good work that he began in you as well. I think when we're willing to risk that, 
rightly understand what proper is, it begins to create openness again. Okay, so that's rightly defining proper. The last thing I want to look at together with you quickly from our passage is humility, the key to exaltation. Humility as being the key ingredient to our exaltation. And this is important for us to look at as well because in the same way that God didn't exalt Joseph when we believe he should have, and hopefully now you can see really clearly why that was, he also doesn't exalt Joseph in the way we expect him to either. What I mean by that is this, so often today and yet certainly in previous generations as well, aren't, aren't we told and taught from a very young age that the path to exaltation, the way to making it to the top, the way to, to getting ahead in life is self-promotion. That's what we need. You need to put yourself out there, put your best foot forward or whatever it is um, to make sure that that resume is nicely put together with, with all of your most lucrative qualities put in my best qualities section right next to the links to my professionally designed website, YouTube page, and LinkedIn profile. I've got to put all these things, like I need to make sure you see how much I know, how all the things that I can do. I need to promote myself, and sure, it's a lot of work. Maybe it's not always 100% accurate, but hey, we, we, we do this because for most of us, we hear that word exalt, exaltation, and immediately we think promotion, we think, uh, um, I'm no longer in the, the loser crowd. I'm in with now the popular people. I've got the corner office, whatever it is. And almost instinctively equate achieving that exaltation through self-promotion, through setting myself always in the most beneficial light in front of everyone I encounter whenever possible. I need to make sure everybody knows, hey, I've got these skills. I, I can do this. And yet you remember Peter's words we began with and that I said capture what we see lived out in Joseph's life. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty of hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourselves so that he may exalt you. It seems wrong, right? Humility? Really? That, that's not probably the first thing that comes to mind when we think like what are the key ingredients to exaltation? Humility. And yet, this is exactly what we see in the life of Joseph. For when you think about the, the flow of events that, that lead Joseph here to standing before Pharaoh with what is now undoubtedly his one last shot for freedom, which is to borrow from Hamilton one more time, he does not want to throw away. What does Joseph do? What do we see him doing? Other than promoting himself, Promoting his abilities. Hey, Pharaoh, listen, I know how to interpret dreams. Listen, I've got a good track record. I interpreted this guy's dream. Cup bearer. He's not doing any of that. And this is a really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Pharaoh, how often does Pharaoh express need, express desperation? I, mean, I need to know the interpretation. He can sense it's not good, but he needs to know what, what does this mean? And Joseph does have these abilities. It's proven that he, he can interpret dreams. And yet he doesn't promote himself, he doesn't put himself forward. What does he do instead? Much like he did with the cupbearer and the baker in prison, Joseph points away from himself and towards God. Telling Pharaoh there in verse 16, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Literally in the Hebrew it's, Except for God, who can announce Pharaoh's welfare? In one sentence, simultaneously almost rebuking Pharaoh's assertion, 
calling out all his wise men and magicians as being like, no, they can't actually help me. And promoting his own God as the one who is the sole proprietor of both dreams and their interpretation. Which maybe we balk at a bit in this whole idea of humility, because that doesn't sound very humble to us. That sounds almost like prideful and arrogant. You guys are all wrong. My God is right. It's like it seems kind of prideful. And yet I wonder if the reason we think that is because we haven't also come to wrongly define humility. To see humility as self-depreciation. It's like talking down about myself and my abilities. Oh, I'm not good at that. I don't know how to do that. We think that's humility. And yet I love C.S. Lewis's simple and yet clarifying definition of humility when he says, humility is not thinking less about yourself or even thinking more about other people. It's thinking about yourself less. And if you need evidence of the fact that this is indeed humility Joseph is displaying and not pride and arrogance, you need only to think back to the prideful swagger with which a 17-year-old Joseph used to walk in before his brothers with all of his dreams, you remember? Y'all are going to bow down to me, sun and the moon, they're all bowing down to me. Now, here, he's not exalting himself anymore. He's not exalting his ability to interpret dreams. He's pointing away of himself and pointing to God's abilities, working through him, which really fits perfectly with what seems like the kind of causal relationship Peter is drawing between humility and exaltation. Humble yourselves so that you may be exalted. In effect, centuries later, it was this very same quality of humility that Paul describes Jesus himself. Philippians 2. The, the, the story of Jesus to whom Joseph's story ultimately points. We see Jesus displaying this same humility, which Paul says leads directly to his exaltation to the highest place, being given the name that is above every name. Humility was the thing that brought about his exaltation. In light of all that, I wonder if the point that Peter is making and which we're seeing displayed in Joseph's life in our passage today in the end, isn't that the presence of humility in our lives speaks ultimately to our readiness for exaltation. Humility kind of says we're ready to be exalted now. Like think of the same way when you're baking a cake. I don't know how many of you do that, but... You know how you take that toothpick and stick it into the center to know if it's ready. And when you finally pull it out and there's no more batter stuck to it, you know it is time to take the cake from the oven, set it up, ice it, exalt it on the cake platter. I wonder if that's not exactly what we're seeing as, as the readiness of Joseph's in his life to, to be exalted now. He's displaying the humility and the readiness to be put in this position of exaltation. I'm not going to speak for you. Man, I look back at myself, 17 years of age, even even 27. And, and yeah, I, I see gifts of leadership, um, speaking easily in front of people, compassion for the broken, those kinds of things in seed form in my life anyways. But what I also see is pride, arrogance, contempt, things that would have made me like an absolute nightmare today as your pastor made me a train wreck as a, as a husband and a father if I still had those same qualities today. And yet, which God has graciously, and yes, at times very painfully, helped me to increasingly put to death through various trials, temptations He's allowed me to walk through in order to bring about that greater readiness. In and while there's much more work to do still to be done, just ask my wife, there's still more work to be done. Uh, before God's good work in me is brought to completion, I do, I do see some measure of exaltation that God 
has brought into my life already through the family that he's given me, uh, this church family that he's put me over to, to lead. I do see some measure of exaltation that God has said through this work of humbling in you, I now see you are ready to take on this next stage of exaltation. I count these as high honors, high responsibilities, blessings in my life. But that's Joseph and that, that's me. How about you? What do you see when you look back at your life, at your 17-year-old self until now? Do you see how God has used many of the trials and temptations that you've walked through, as difficult, as agonizing as some of them were and maybe still are, to go through, to form more of His character of humility in you, so that at the proper time He may exalt you? And I don't know, maybe, maybe you're not even 17. You're a freshman at UBC, you're like, bro, that was a year ago. Like, okay, forget forget the age. Forget the age for a second. When you when you look back at the point when Jesus first began his good work in you until today, are you seeing and are others seeing this quality of humility form more and more in you? Because if you're seeing that growth, it's one of the clearest evidences both. That, that He has begun the good work in you, and that your exaltation, whatever that's going to look like in your own life and, and life circumstances, is every day closer to being complete. And if you're not seeing that growth in humility, no, it doesn't necessarily mean that God hasn't also begun a good work in you. But I do think it's important to ask why. Why not? And I know this, this won't be true for everyone, but it may be for you that the reason you're not seeing that growth in humility yet is because you're so focused on exaltation. You're so focused on being freed from or getting out from whatever that trial or struggle it is that you're walking through that you may be resisting, you may be pushing away the very tool that God is using in order to work humility more deeply into you, in order to bring about that readiness for exaltation. We learned two weeks ago, we must allow perseverance to complete its work. I don't know how many of you noticed when we read through our passage today uh, that this is the first time in Joseph's life since he was first uh, sold into slavery by his brothers that the narrator has not told us that the Lord was with Joseph. In each of the previous chapters, each time he said, but the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. Now suddenly not here anymore. And I wonder, my, my assumption is the reason for that omission is because Joseph's being exalted in a moment over the whole land of Egypt, right out of his prison cell. God's presence with Joseph seems pretty obvious to most of us. I mean, this is pretty much what we mean when we ask God to be with us or, or with somebody. We're like, do stuff like that. When you look at the names, Joseph gives his sons Manasseh, which means... God made me forget all of my hardship and all my father's house, by which I think he means the difficulties and the struggles and the hurts that came through them. And Ephraim, which means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. It certainly seems like Joseph sees God's presence as pretty obvious with him here as well. And yet when you look at the inclusion of the description of God's presence with Joseph previously in some of the hardest, darkest places in his life compared with 
the absence of that description here in a place where God's presence seems most obvious. I wonder if we're not being shown just one thing further in this passage. Namely, the blessing, exaltation, those things alone are not the sole indicator of God's presence with us. You know that. Blessing and exaltation alone, those are not the sole indicator of God's presence with you. Because yes, very clearly, God was absolutely with Joseph here in his exaltation. He was with him in his honor and blessing and restoration and all these things. And yet what the narrator seems desperate to point out to us is that God was also with Joseph in his abandonment. He was also with him in his betrayal, in his dishonor, and in the darkness of that prison cell as well. I think very simply, I think the reason he wants us to know that is because if God was still with Joseph in all those places, even in the places where his presence had to be stated because it was so unapparent, it was so hidden, then maybe, just maybe, Maybe God's presence really was with you in all those places where you felt like He failed you. And He wasn't with you as well. And it's with you even now. Whether that presence seems obvious or apparent to you now. This trusting work of God, waiting on God's proper time to exalt us, I think is captured so well in the the words of a 17th century hymn, which I want to read a few lines from, I'll close with this. I think the writer here teaches us to confess these kinds of truths about that idea along with him. He says this, Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er he does. I know and I'll follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. May God help us wait on His proper time. Rightly define that. And allow His work of humbling to truly bring us to that place of readiness for exaltation.